Greetings. I'm Jeff Carls, Executive Director here at the Institute on Religious Life, and I'd like to welcome you to the Institute's new podcast series called Ever Ancient, Ever New. I'm so excited to share with you the first official episode of the podcast. We have an amazing first episode for you today. We will be presenting to a, a talk from Father James McCurry titled, Behold the Lamb, the Eucharist and Prisoners of Conscience. This talk was presented at the most recent annual national meeting in 2023. Reverend James McCurry, OFM Conventual, was born in Ireland and has lectured, conducted retreats and spiritual days, and preached in all 50 of the United States, as well as in over 60 countries on all seven continents. He authored Maximilian Kobe, Martyr of Charity, has published several articles and appeared on numerous radio, television, and video programs. His Mariology series on EWTN was syndicated for several years, and he has frequently been a guest on the network. He is the Minister Provincial Emeritus of Franciscan Friars Conventual, Our Lady of Angels Province, and Vice President of Mariological Society of America. Father McCurry Curry currently serves as a member of the IRL Board of Directors. I now invite you to sit back and take in the profound insights and experiences that Father McCurry will be sharing in this podcast. First, I would like to take the opportunity to thank uh, Father Nelson and Jeff uh, for inviting me last year to become a member of the Board of Advisors and Directors for the Institute on Religious Life. It's uh, one of the greatest honors and privileges of my life. And uh, I was acquainted with the founder of the Institute, Father John Harden, and well remember one particular event with Father Hardin when I presented him the St. Maximilian Kolbe Award in Chicago over 30 years ago. And uh, uh, poor Father Hardin had been in an auto accident prior to arriving in Chicago. And when he came for the award ceremony, he had a black eye, a bruised and battered face. And I said to him, Oh my dear Father Hardin, or were you were you at fisticuffs with a feminist? <laughs> well, he didn't normally laugh or smile much, but that brought a smile to his face, and I'll always remember that smile of Father Hardin. So please God he'll be canonized a saint someday. Well, the graced inspiration for this talk of mine entitled Behold the Lamb, the Eucharist and Prisoners of conscience hinges on two experiences which God gave me and which I beg your indulgence now to relate. The first happened at my family's ancestral home farm in Ireland several years ago. The second happened last August in the city of Oświęcim, Poland, better known as Auschwitz. First, the Irish incident. The ancestral thatched cottage of my mother's family had originally been built in the 17th century by the troops of Oliver Cromwell during his violent invasion when cruel penal laws were imposed upon the Catholic Church. 
confiscating churches, suppressing the mass, and executing priests. When that small thatched lodge had become too incommodious for Cromwell's horses and men, causing them to abandon it, my mother's homeless ancestors moved into it and made it their home. Centuries later, our family still lives there, but in a new house which was built next door over 30 years ago with indoor plumbing, I might add. <laughs> One day while visiting my family there, I was outside with an elderly aunt cleaning out the haggard, the storage kitchen garden patch. And didn't we discover a large flat stone lying in the middle of the haggard? I turned it over and lo and behold, was there not carved into that stone a brilliant bas-relief aged in time of a priest offering mass at an altar. Immediately, my old aunt cried out, roar that stone into the barn. I don't want any of those university professors trampling on my farm to study old stones. <laughs> so we hid it away. Most likely, the primitive piece dates back to the most repressive period of the old Irish penal days between 1652 and 1792, an horrific, unjust penal time which had actually begun a century earlier and not fully ended until Catholic emancipation in 1829. And during the height of the British Parliament's penal persecution of Catholicism in Ireland, during the height of it, the faithful Catholic clergy and laity would risk their lives, risk their lives secretly to offer clandestine masses in woodlands and forest glades or by the hedgerows on mass rocks. Sentries would keep brave vigilance. Nowadays, some Catholic anthropologists ascribe to this phenomenon of Ireland's hidden quiet penal masses, the continuing Irish proclivity for short masses with no singing. <laughs> Collectively, through all those penal years, the faithful Irish priests and people could be considered collectively prisoners of conscience. When they beheld the Lamb of God on the altar of a mass rock, they knew their Catholic identity. The stone rejected by the builders remained the cornerstone for Irish Catholics. The priesthood of Jesus Christ and the Mass were the rock to which their lives stood humbly anchored. The second experience which has stimulated my presentation this morning about the Mass and the priesthood, prisoners of conscience and the Lamb of God, took place in the St. Maximilian Kolbe Church of Oświęcim, Poland, which I visited last August. Oświęcim is better known to the world by its German name, Auschwitz. Three unique relics associated with priest prisoners of Auschwitz concentration camp are preserved and publicly venerated in that parish church. A small, collapsible silver chalice, a meticulously handwritten miniature Latin missal in scroll form, and the remains of St. Maximilian Kolbe's Franciscan crown rosary. 
Let me just note in passing that before the massive transformation of Auschwitz into an extermination camp for millions of Jews, the earliest prisoners at Auschwitz were Polish Catholics, including priests, professors, professionals, and soldiers. Our Franciscan friar conventual, St. Maximilian Kolbe, was one of those early prisoners, the 16,670th to arrive in Auschwitz in May 1941. As you know, he would die as a martyr of charity three months later, sacrificing his life to save the father of a family, Mr. Franciszek Gajewniczek. In all of the testimonies of survivors of Auschwitz concentration camp, there are several accounts of clandestine masses offered secretly by priest prisoners in basements or lofts or hidden corners of the concentration camp. One ex-prisoner, Henry Schenkevich, testified that he attended and received Holy Communion at two scrupulously secret masses offered in Auschwitz by St. Maximilian Kolbe himself. Prisoners would save morsels of their scant daily bread ration and crushed grapes to use for sacramental elements. Archbishop Adam Sapieha of Krakow smuggled into the camp a consoling letter indicating that such provisional sacramental elements under these emergency conditions conformed to the canon law code of the church. Civilian laborers who lived in the nearby town of Oshvienchim and commuted daily to work in the camp would, at risk of life and limb, secretly bring mass necessities to priest prisoners in the camp. And one such civilian laborer, Mr. Franciszek Potashnik, was entrusted with the two sacred mass relics that I held and venerated last summer in the parish church of Oshvienchim, the collapsible silver chalice and the miniature missile scroll. Evidently, both had been used by several priests in Auschwitz on various occasions. The priest, Father Stuklik, who confided them to Mr. Potashnik, <clears throat> was about to be transferred to Dachau, and he wanted to assure that these sacred relics be preserved. Mr. Potashnik could have been killed on the spot for undertaking the smuggling task but courageously and successfully he concealed them in the leg of his trousers. He entrusted them to the parish priest of Oshvienchim, who in turn kept them hidden behind the stove in the chancellery until the end of the war. The testimonies about these manifestations of sacramental Eucharistic life amidst the horrors of a death camp shed light on sublime moments when the sacramental presence of Jesus Christ in the words of historian Teresa von Torchi, quote, represented for priest prisoners an opportunity for the sacrament, while the prisoners in turn experience consolation and hope for survival. Innocent Catholic prisoners of conscience, clergy and laity, beheld the Lamb of God, and they partook of his divine mercy at the altar. From the time of the apostles and the underground church of the catacombs, the offering of Holy Mass, the Eucharist, has held pride of place in the life of the church. In times of persecution over two millennia 
ago. Courageous priests have risked life and limb, as have their lay flocks, to assure that bread and wine be consecrated, transubstantiated, on an altar of sacrifice for the life of the world. I entitled this presentation, Behold the Lamb, because of the biblical significance that phrase holds for the patriarchal and prophetic significance of the priesthood in the Old and the New Testaments and covenants. The priesthood, which prisoners of conscience have striven since the founding of the church through the present moment to exercise at altars, even in the most dire of circumstances. Pay heed that one question posed over and over again in the Old Testament was, where's the lamb? Genesis 22.7, beginning with Isaac's query of his father Abraham on Mount Moriah, through Moses ordering the Israelites to select their Passover lambs, through Nathan's parable of rebuke to King David about his illicit quest of an innocent lamb, through Ezekiel's mandate to priests to select and offer an unblemished lamb, through Isaiah's four songs of the suffering servants, wherein he implies a messianic identification of the suffering servant with the sought lamb of sacrifice. Quoting Isaiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers dumb. This patriarchal and prophetic quest of the lamb throughout the Old Testament culminates at a great dramatic moment, a great dramatic line of demarcation between the two testaments, when the last of the Old Covenant prophets, John the Baptist, on the banks of the River Jordan, bellows, there's the lamb. Behold the Lamb. Jesus Christ understood himself to be the Lamb of God in a dual sense. Isaiah's sacrificial lamb being offered for the sins of the world and Revelation's victoriously worthy lamb who triumphed over death and eternally presides at the heavenly banquet. There is a lamb spirituality in the scriptures that is essential to the priesthood. Our Lord adumbrates, foreshadows a lamb dynamic which he intends be infused into the vocation and lifeblood of every priest. Sacerdotal ordination implies an unworthy human presbyter's total configuration with Jesus Christ, the high priest, Lamb of God specifically in reference to our Lord's passion sacrifice and resurrection victory. The sacrament of holy orders imparts with an indelible seal an ontological union between presbyter and Christ the high priest, in whose eternal priesthood the ordinan participates. <clears throat> Once I made bold to ask a defrocked priest, child abuser, how he could in conscience have perpetrated such heinous and inexcusable crimes, yet still stand at the altar, offer mass, and preach a decent homily.
he replied tragically to me, quote, one word, compartmentalization. He put priesthood into one compartment of his life and his sinful crimes into another. This is corruption of the most sacrilegious ilk. The holy priesthood is not compartmental. It is ontological. It infuses every fiber of being in the unworthy man whom Christ has called to become a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Accordingly, the Eucharist, then, is written over every page of a true priest's life and being on earth and into eternity. This optic of a priest's lamb spirituality may help us to see a bit more deeply into the three basic teachings of the Catholic Church regarding the Eucharist, the sacred body and blood of Christ at Mass. I beg your indulgence if the rhyme that I am about to share from my childhood initially sounds a bit irreverent. You will soon get my point. As a child, I was taught a slightly different version of the song, Mary Had a Little Lamb, than you perhaps have heard before. Grandpa used to say, Mary had a little lamb, its foot was black as soot, and into Mary's jar of jam, its sooty foot it put. <laughs> well, think about it. The Blessed Virgin Mary had a little lamb, and her lamb, Jesus, did not disdain getting his foot sooty. And indeed, because his feet got mucky, we got lucky. The grace of salvation. And this simple little ditty bespeaks the first of the church's teachings on the Eucharist, which a priest confects. It is real presence, real presence. The second aspect of the church's teaching on the Eucharist is that it is real sacrifice. My childhood rhyme continues. Mary had a little lamb, her father shot it dead, and now it goes to school with her between two bits of bread. <laughs> By the will of the Father, the Virgin Mary's lamb Jesus was put to death, and now he comes to us in the form of a small bit, a small host of bread, miraculously transubstantiated at Mass into the body and blood of Christ. Real sacrifice leads then to the third aspect of the church's teaching on Eucharist. It is real meal, an earthly banquet that is forever joined to the eternal supper of the Lamb in heaven. These are the doctrinal realities of the church's teaching on the Eucharist. You all know them already. The realities which every priest understands and theologically integrates into his sacerdotal life and ministry. I should like to cite for you now five such priests who all became prisoners of conscience during recent times in the 20th century. One canonized saint, two cardinals, one religious bishop, and one religious priest. Each of these priest prisoners can be understood as seeing himself ontologically united to Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb, being led to the slaughter, and to Jesus Christ, the triumphant lamb, at the eternal banquet. 
these priest-prisoner stories of Eucharistic survival in the church of the locked door, we might call it, provide an optic on the mystery of the Mass itself and its internal movements of grace. All five were taken prisoner because they refused to abandon their priestly ministry, even under threatening circumstances. The first I shall mention is Ignatius Cardinal Kung Pinmei, the Bishop of Shanghai, China, who was born in 1901 and died in the year 2000. The rapidly anti-Catholic Chinese Communist government imprisoned him for 33 years, 1955 to 1988, and exiled him from China upon his release. During Bishop Kung's long imprisonment, he was secretly named a cardinal in pectore by Pope St. John Paul II. Cardinal Kung's ejection from China brought him to the United States, where he would live near and eventually with his Chinese relatives who had emigrated to Stamford, Connecticut, namely his nephew, the recently deceased Joseph Kung, and Joseph's wife Agnes and their children. I actually came to know Cardinal Kung during those years of his residence in Connecticut, and in fact, I had the privilege of giving him the last rites of the Catholic Church before he died. It's important to note that during all the years of his confinement in Chinese prisons, never once was Bishop Kung allowed to offer mass. His family attempted several times to send parcels from America with the, asp uh, with the mass elements concealed. All were returned to sender with the notice, addressee unknown, the most famous of all Chinese prisoners, nonetheless had his own strategy for continuing priestly ministry while jailed. He would write from memory in a pristine Latin script the words of the entire mass from introit to last gospel on paper provided him. Of course, the Tridentine rite being the only one that he knew. And in this mass notebook, Cardinal Kung gave great focus to those words of the last gospel, which daily proclaimed the first chapter of St. John. His eyes and his heart dwelt with especial reverence on the phrase verbum caro factum est. The word was made flesh at habitavit in nobis and dwelt amongst us. Many, many times the guards confiscated his mass books and he simply and discarded it Undaunted, he would simply create a new one. And the last of them he actually carried with him upon his release. And whenever I offer mass on his altar in the house chapel of the Kung family home in Connecticut, I always ask that this mass book be placed on the altar. It serves to remind me that even when a priest prisoner of conscience, like Cardinal Kung, is unable to offer mass, his intentional will to connect with the Eucharist gives glory to God. Cardinal Kung lived a serene, indeed mystical, 33-year penitential rite. Let me add that on Maundy Thursday, 1988 in Connecticut, the frail Cardinal attended the Mass of the Lord's Supper 
and join the procession to the repository at Queen of Clergy residence in Bridgeport. He was so inspired, his first Holy Thursday Mass in over three decades, that he burst out into spontaneous hymns. And long after the other priests had left the repository chapel, the cardinal remained there for nearly an hour, wrapped in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament. A second prelate of the Catholic Church who was imprisoned by the Chinese communists for 12 years was the former superior general of the Mary Knoll Missionary Society, Bishop James E. Walsh, who lived from 1891 until 1981, born in Cumberland, Maryland. From 1958 through 1970, he was jailed in solitary confinement, tortured, constantly interrogated, and absolutely forbidden to offer mass. He strove daily to recall from memory passages of the gospel. His rosary having been confiscated, he prayed its 15 mysteries daily on his fingers as a type of gospel in miniature. The Chinese Catholic faithful, unable to rescue their bishop, gave him the name Wa Li Su, meaning pillar of truth because of his priestly commitment. Years later, affirming, my, in his words, my great constant comfort was the rosary and connecting it to the gospel passages he remembered. Bishop Walsh felt that imprisonment afforded him the grace to partake of the Blessed Virgin Mary's receptivity to the word of God. His captivity in solitary confinement truly became a living liturgy of the word. The third modern priest prisoner of conscience whom I cannot fail to mention is Saint Maximilian Kolbe, a Franciscan friar conventual born in Poland in 1894 and martyred at Auschwitz in 1941. His biography is well known. Less known is the fact that from the day of his ordination in 1918 until the day of his final arrest in 1941, Father Colby kept a notebook listing every mass he ever offered, its date, its place, its intentions. The final mass he recorded on the day of his arrest was number 7,695. In this mass book, the intention which Father Colby wrote for the second of his three masses on his first Christmas as a priest in 1918 was prophetic. Pro amore usque ad victimam, for love unto victimhood. It is unknown whether for his two clandestine masses at Auschwitz, Father Colby used the collapsible chalice and miniature missile scroll that I described at the beginning of this paper. However, the gospel text in the Auschwitz Missal is telling. Whoever composed the scroll wrote from memory one gospel in it, the Bread of Life discourse from chapter 6 of St. John. Hence, whenever priests and laity at Auschwitz gathered for their clandestine masses behind the barbed wire and used this Missal scroll, the theme of the gospel was Eucharist, Jesus saying, quote, I am the bread of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now Auschwitz survivors who attended these secret masses and heard that Bread of Life discourse testified to the extraordinary strength they derived from the Eucharist, enabling them to surrender themselves to God's care and protection with abandon. These priests became, the priests became their sacramental ministers in a profound mode. And thus, when Commandant Fritsch asked prisoner number 16670, as he volunteered to substitute for the condemned Franciszek Gajewniczek, Father Colby would respond simply without his name, iconically, I am a Catholic priest. The priest is a man of sacrifice, offering himself, like Jesus Christ, as a man for others. Father Colby, friar, priest, martyr, experienced Auschwitz as a living offertory rite, entailing his daily surrender and self-abandonment. Father Colby would have been the first to attest that such a stance of self-offering is impossible without supernatural help from the Blessed Virgin Mary. She herself had stood compassionate and supportive at the foot of the cross of Calvary, and she takes a like stance beside every priest whose suffering unites him with Jesus crucified. I spoke earlier about the relic of St. Maximilian Kolbe's rosary. Having been ruthlessly beaten at Paviak prison in Warsaw on the day of his arrest, because he was wearing his Franciscan uh, habit with its Franciscan crown rosary suspended from the triple knotted cord, Father Maximilian had collected all the shattered beads and he restrung them with threads from his habit. Uh, he kept that rosary hidden in an inner pocket of his prison uniform at Auschwitz until he died. However, Whenever he met a fellow inmate at Auschwitz who seemed to be despairing or depressed, Father Colby would loan him that rosary uh, and confide him to the Immaculate Virgin's maternal care. Young Wilhelm Zalajny, on the verge of a mental breakdown, was the last Auschwitz inmate to be loaned the rosary by Father Maximilian with gentle words of encouragement, and it succeeded in bringing young Wilhelm out of his depression. When he tried to return the beads to Father Colby, he discovered that the friar priest had already been taken to the starvation bunker of his martyrdom. So he kept it and later presented it to the parish church in Auschwitz. A fourth contemporary priest prisoner of conscience was the staunch Catholic primate of Hungary, Joseph Cardinal Minzenti, born in 1892, died in 1975. A victim of the communist totalitarianism behind the Iron Curtain that divided Europe after World War II, Cardinal Minzenti was convicted on false espionage charges at a sham trial. Sentenced to life in prison, he spent eight years in solitary confinement, subjected to torture, electronic prods, truncheons, and beatings. It was a painful ordeal of which he later wrote simply, quote, 
the convict in solitary confinement never sees God's green fields, woods, flowery meadows, acres of ripening grass scattered with poppies. For the first nine months of imprisonment, he was not allowed to offer mass. Afterwards, uh, on the occasions when he was permitted to offer mass, the guards would stand nearby and loudly jeer, mock, and harass him, all of which God's grace allowed him to ignore. During the nine months when he was unable to offer mass, an extraordinary series of mystical phenomena occurred. Recorded in the canonization process for St. Padre Pio is confirmation from the latter that Padre Pio bilocated from Italy to the solitary cell of Cardinal Menzenti. The Capuchin stigmatic brought with him to Budapest bread and wine for Cardinal Mizenti to transform at Mass into the body and blood of Christ. Padre Pio confirmed the bilocation to his close associate, Angelo Battisti, and re who then recorded it in the testimonials for, the, for Padre Pio's canonization. And Car Padre Pio sadly observed to Angelo Battisti, quote, the devil is ugly, but they had left him, Cardinal Menzenti, uglier than the devil. When the ill-fated Hungarian revolt of 1956 took place, the revolutionaries liberated Cardinal Menzenti, who a few days later, when the revolt failed, was forced to seek asylum in the United States Embassy in Budapest. He remained there for 15 years, unable to leave the premises. Every Sunday, a junior embassy official would round up American Catholics in Budapest to attend Cardinal Mazenti's Sunday Mass in the embassy. The Cardinal later wrote and spoke about the transformative impact that those first nine months without Mass would have and would effect in his future priestly celebration of the Eucharist. His whole prison experience became a living consecration, his priestly consecration inseparable from the sacramental consecration at Mass. The fifth and last of the priest prisoners of conscience that I propose for your inspiration was the Servite priest, director of Catholic Relief Services in Beirut, Lebanon, Father Lawrence Jenko, born in 1934 in Illinois, died 1996. In 1985, while being driven to work in impoverished West Beirut, Father Jenko was kidnapped by armed gunmen from the radical Shiite Muslims of Hezbollah at a time of Islamic Jihad. He would spend over 18 months, 564 days, in captivity, chained and blindfolded allowed to use the toilet only once a day, beaten ruthlessly, moved from place to place while bound by tape from head to toe in the trunks of cars. He had no Bible or books, nor glasses to read them if he did. So he made a small rosary for himself out of sack and found his only solace in his secret masses and in praying to the Virgin Mary while meditating on the gospel, particularly Jesus' compassion for the poor. 
And while praying the Our Father at Mass and on his makeshift rosary, he kept reflecting on the words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. His prayer was to be able to forgive his captors, and he strove throughout his painful plight to resist any temptation to be unforgiving. On the night before his release, one of his guards, Haj, asked him if he could forgive them. Father Jenko promised Haj he would, and for the rest of his life, he kept asking God for the grace, quote, to let go of revenge, retaliation, and vindictiveness. His priestly heart kept evoking the call to unity that Jesus issued during his Last Supper discourse, John 17. Father Jenko's hostage experience became for him a type of living communion rite in which he strove to strike a way of unity, of communion with all of those, even those who were persecuting him. Now, in these vignettes about five priest prisoners of conscience and the rituals of life in captivity, I suggest that it is quite possible to recognize the template of Holy Mass itself, the Eucharistic mystery. In the Mass template, there are five basic parts, the penitential rite, the liturgy of the word, the offertory, the Eucharistic prayer, the communion. Corresponding to these five parts of the Mass, one can note in the priest celebrant and in the lay faithful worshipers five accompanying movements of the heart, conversion, receptivity to the word of God, surrender of self, transformation of self, and unity. Much more could be said about this correspondence. Let me suffice to recommend, however, a prayerful way for any one of us to reflect on these movements of the heart during Holy Mass, these movements of conversion, receptivity to the Word of God, surrender of self, transformation of self, and unity. Since the Blessed Virgin Mary was given to the apostles by God as their maternal companion in living out the Paschal mystery, let the rosary, which was so vital for all five of our priest prisoners, help us to connect the dots in our own Paschal journeys from darkness to light. The precise type of Paschal journey that our five prisoners of conscience underwent during their times of captivity. During Mass, the priest and the people, as God's little ones, walk a journey of light, and the Virgin Mary accompanies and enlightens us. Bear with me. The new set of luminous mysteries of the Rosary is particularly apt in helping us appreciate the Mass, its five parts, and our corresponding movements of the heart during Mass. Accordingly, as one walks life's journey from darkness into light, all five mysteries of light point us to Calvary as the place of light, where Jesus Christ, the high priest and light of the world, overcame darkness. I chanced to be present at the audience of Pope St. John Paul II when he introduced the new luminous mysteries in October 2002. One wag sitting near me moaned, saying, I pray all 15 decades every day, now the Pope's making me say five more. 
who does he think he is? I looked at him, I said, he's the Pope. <laughs> I like to think that in the Luminous Mysteries, the real Mass becomes illuminated. We behold the Lamb of Light. We behold the Lamb at the waters, his baptism in the Jordan. We hold, behold the Lamb at the side of his mother, the wedding feast of Cana. We behold the Lamb amidst his flock, proclaiming the kingdom throughout Palestine. We behold the Lamb transformed in glory at the transfiguration on Mount Tabor. We behold the Lamb at his eternal banquet, the institution of the Eucharist in the upper room on Mount Zion. Our call to interior conversion, receptivity, surrender, transformation, and unity correlate, deepening our bond of participation in the Eucharistic mystery. How profoundly Our Lady wishes us to live this Eucharistic lamb spirituality while participating in Holy Mass. A summary tableau of Our Lady's role in helping not only priest prisoners of conscience, but all of us to attend, <coughs> to attend profoundly to the Eucharistic mystery can be found in the 1879 apparition of Our Lady of Knock in County Mayo, Ireland. Before a group of 15 sheep farmers, the Mother of God appeared luminously in front of an altar with angels hovering. On the altar was the Lamb of God, the most luminous image in the whole tableau, which also included Saints Joseph and John the Evangelist flanking Our Lady. This is the only recorded apparition of the Lamb of God. Our Lady stands in front of the altar utterly silent, with her hands raised in the Oron's praying position. She's the luminous lady, adorer of the Lamb, perfect worshiper, model mass-goer, attention totally wrapped upon the Paschal mystery. I have visited Knock Shrine and preached there many times. Two days ago, the President of the United States visited there. The Irish faithful are attracted there like bees to honey. One can hope that the old experiences of penal days and mass rocks have left ingrained in their consciousness a loving appreciation for the mass and the priesthood which makes the Eucharist possible. There's a danger of losing this consciousness today, however, so an urgency prevails among us to keep as vigilant as the sentries were at the hedgerow masses of olden days. While walking in front of the Basilica of Knock on one particular occasion when we had a large Franciscan pilgrimage day there, I stopped to chat with an elderly woman holding the hand of her little granddaughter. I said to the child, do you go to school yet? She replied, I don't. So I asked her, when will you begin school? She perked up and said, Next year, if God spares me. <laughs> I looked at the old woman and said, I think she spends a lot of time with her granny. Indeed, she does. And the old woman, I'm clueless to why I was grinning from ear to ear. Yet there was wisdom flowing from the mouth of that child. Clueless, though her granny was. Wisdom, because whether you're four, or whether you're 40, or whether you're four score, none of us really knows how much time we have left how many more masses we shall be able to attend. So there's an urgency that now, 
not even waiting until tomorrow, we make our resolution to let the Eucharist illuminate our journeys of life the way God intends and leads, the way Mother Mary accompanies. There's an urgency about this. In every convent of St. Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity throughout the world, there's a small board hanging in the sacristy with these words of urgency addressed to the priest celebrant. Priest of God, celebrate this Mass as if it is your first Mass, your last Mass, your only Mass. Nearing the end of these reflections, I ask that you kindly indulge me one last story. I was minding three of my little cousins in the kitchen of our Irish farmhouse several years ago. Uh, their granny had gone out to milk the cows, and I had the unenviable task of preventing chaos in the kitchen with a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and an eight-year-old. So I said to them, children, uh, why don't you sing me a few songs? So they sang a few songs, but soon grew weary of the singing. I added, children, why don't you dance me a few jigs and reels? So they danced a few jigs and reels and soon grew weary of the dancing. I still had more time to kill before they killed me. <laughs> Suddenly I remembered that the eight-year-old was just after making her first Holy Communion. So I said, tell me what you know about our Catholic faith. Well, she stood up proud as a peacock and proceeded to recite for me from memory something that obviously she'd memorized. Uh, she said, and I quote exactly because I wrote it down afterwards, it was so priceless, quote, eight years old, mind you, we're born into this troublesome world, and then we're baptized, and at the hour of death with the help of Mary, we leave this troublesome world, and there'll be brandy at the gates. Uh, brandy at the gates. I come from a family of teetotalers. I don't know where she got that line. Yeah. Uh, uh. Whether there'll be brandy at the gates, I do not know. However, there will be the wine of the new covenant, the precious blood of the Lamb at the eternal Eucharistic banquet. And it is to that sublime, eternal supper of the Lamb that holy mass and holy priesthood is destined by God to lead us all, if only we persevere in faith, hope, and charity. In the Maronite Catholic liturgy from Lebanon, every priest actually uses Jesus Christ's original Aramaic language for the words of consecration. I should like to end with the poignant prayer which the Maronite priest reverently recites as he kisses the altar at the conclusion of Mass. This prayer profoundly expresses the inseparable bond between the priest and the Mass, which I have tried to elucidate in this presentation. May it crown our reflection this morning. Quote, Remain in peace, O holy altar of God, and I hope to return to you in peace. May the offering I have received from you forgive my sins and help me to stand blameless before the throne of Christ. I know not whether I will be able to return to you again to offer sacrifice. Guard me, O Lord, and protect your holy church 
that she may be the way of salvation and the light of the world. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. I hope that this podcast has inspired you and that you will pray along with me for an increase in vocations to the priesthood and religious life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O God, throughout the ages, you have called women and men to pursue lives of perfect charity through the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. We give you thanks for these courageous witnesses of faith and models of inspiration. Their pursuit of holy lives teaches us to make a more perfect offering of ourselves to you. Continue to enrich your church by calling forth sons and daughters who, having found the pearl of great price, treasure the kingdom of heaven above all things. Amen. Thank you and God bless.